Hi, this is Sean Sipos. I play Adam Strange on Krypton, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to another brainalicious edition of Neil Before Pod. I'm your host Craig and I'm here to bring you a discussion of the fifth and final season of the CW show iZombie. So I'm hoping he's eating the right brain for this particular podcast. Hi Andrew. Hello and I can assure you that I am fully 100% human and I will not randomly rage out in the middle of recording unless I suddenly get invaded by my dog. Fair enough. Well, I might be a zombie so... I may be on Clever Podcaster Brain. Who knows? The listeners can decide once it goes live. Okay, so in case that intro didn't give anything away, we are here to talk about iZombie, which is a show that I've been watching for like five years and is now over and never had the chance to record my thoughts on it, so here we are. But first, we'll kneel before rise against other stuff. Type, you know, regular feature and all that. So, Andrew, do you want to start us off with a kneel before? I am kneeling before there being a reboot getting made of the Resident Evil movies, which it may sound surprising that it's something I'm I'm kneeling before, uh, given how interminable the previous series of movies was. But the reason why I'm hopeful about it is partly because it's being directed by Johannes Roberts, who did the Shark Cage movie 47 Meters Down and the sequel to The Strangers called Claude Hope Pray at Night, uh, both of which I quite enjoyed. And also the reboot is said to be taking more inspiration from the original game, which for those unfamiliar with it took place inside this empty gothic mansion in the dead of night where people were being stalked by zombies and the whole thing was about tactics and survival and forward planning instead of just wading in guns blazing and mowing down entire armies of the undead which I think it would be a lot more interesting doing it this way that's probably not going to happen for quite a while but it's something I will be looking forward to interesting I don't know how I missed this the last Resident Evil stuff I heard about was the TV show on Netflix. Is that now not happening? Possibly, yes. I'm, I'm asking you as if you're like making the bloody thing. but um, I think it might not be, because when Roberts was asked about it, he specified that it, that it was a film he was making and not a TV series. Okay. Interesting. I suppose these properties just fly around, change tactic all the time, so... I like the Resident Evil movies. I can't even explain why I like them. They're objectively not good on almost any level. But there's something about them that makes me just... Yeah, these are alright. I quite enjoy them on some level. I love the games, especially the earlier games. So Resident Evil, the first one. The remake of the GameCube is sublime. It's the best word I can use to describe it. Resident Evil 2, one of my favourite games of all time. The remake, perfection in terms of just that concept. So yeah, if they're going to go... Harking a bit back to the video game roots, then fine. The question I have about like Resident Evil as a film franchise is, what are you going to do that's any different from pretty much any other zombie franchise out there? Other than, yeah, we've got the mad scientist angle. Even in its best incarnations, Resident Evil is still campy. 
you know, you've got the, the evil scientists who are experimenting on people and creatures and things like that. So if they're going to try and take it in a kind of horror-ish direction, I wonder how they'll balance that. Because you will have to have the, let's sneak down into the lab and fight the big monster at the end, you know. So I don't know. I don't know how they'll get around that. Oh, I'm just hoping that it's going to end up being as scary as, as the brief uh, description of it suggests it would. Because I do remember playing Resident Evil as a kid. Well, as a teenager, rather. But it absolutely scared the crap out of me. And it was brilliant. Yeah. The yeah, first I'm... one is intense. And one of the reasons that I absolutely love horror as a genre, indeed why many people do, is the, the notion of being absolutely terrified but in a controlled environment. And I think if the new film is able to tap into that kind of memory of enjoying being scared, then I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, watch this space. Be interested to read more of it. I did like 47 Metres Down. I thought it was pretty good as shark movies go. I don't know, it probably isn't anything special or that, but it's all right. I thought it was quite good. And just like, as, a, as a random aside, I do have a theory about shark movies in that they're generally supposed to be taken seriously if they don't actually have the word shark in the title. So they got things like 47 Meters Down and The Reef and The Shallows and Jaws and 12 Days of Terror and, and whatnot. And then on the other end, you've got things like Three-Headed Shark Attack and like Sharktopus, Sharknado, like uh, Sharks in Venice, Jersey Shore Shark Attack, <laughs> Sand Sharks, Ice Sharks, Planet of the Sharks, which are all utterly ridiculous camp fun, but in, in, in no way meant to be taken seriously whatsoever. So your theory is kind of ruined by the Meg, or the Jaws sequels. Well, I think the Jaws sequels kind of gave themselves a pass because they were Jaws sequels. <laughs> and the Meg seemed to think... It was a lot more serious than it actually came off as. And I suppose it is named after the Megalodon, which is the species of animal. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You, you, even if it does start using Stingham. Yeah. I will accept your theory. You've seen more shark movies than I have, very clearly. A bit of a bonus for everyone. Yeah. Test that theory, write in, tell us if it stands up. Manual before is that they are possibly going to be making a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I can't remember where it is. It's probably on one of these streaming platforms. Quite excited about this because I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I enjoyed the film, the old series, the old BBC one. Pretty good. I'm looking forward to seeing what they can maybe do with it and have a more long-form approach to it. Might be pretty good. You could sort of have each season's a book or something like that. That'd be five seasons, five books in the trilogy. I think it's safe to say that Douglas Adams will not be involved in this TV series. Although it's a kind of crazy thing you would end up doing somehow. That's an idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. Written <laughs> by Douglas Adams. How? Yeah, we, we, Wait, what? Turned, we turned the script in for revisions. I suppose it's just as well, because is he not historically incapable of turning anything in on time? That is true, yes. The Doctor Who people hated him. Where's our script? That we're shooting, like, next week. Hurry up. Yeah, I think it might have been him who originated that line about loving the sound that deadlines make as they go whizzing past. Yeah. So, I'm looking forward to this. I don't know if you'll ever beat Alan Rickman as uh, Marvin. More the depressed than paranoid android, but he was hilarious. And I think you certainly wouldn't be able to beat Stephen Fry as the guide itself. I'm fairly sure they'll just make him do it again. That would work. He'd probably be up for it. Yeah. Why not? It's a paycheck. All he has to do is read. Job done. Yeah, and I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing what they do with that, and especially in a more long-form way of storytelling, as you said. Uh, just because Douglas Adams' writing has so many weird, out-there ideas that he flung into all these books, that to try to condense them into one single movie really wouldn't work. One thing I would really like to see realised, there's a bit in, in one of the books where there was 
a creature whose name I can't remember, but it was it was this like a self reincarnating creature, and in every single one of its lives, something Arthur did accidentally killed it. <laughs> and as a result, it had developed visceral hatred for him and saw him as its nemesis. And I'd love to see just like small bits and pieces uh, seeded throughout the series suggesting this, and then and for all to accommodate in that and pay off in some hilariously anticlimactic way because that's how Douglas Adams' humour works. Yeah. I always love some of the descriptions he has. It hovered in the air in the same way a brick would not. You know, that kind of stuff. Genius writing. I love the Hitchhiker Guidebooks. It's been so long since I've read them, but such a hilarious read from start to finish. Yeah, I want to reread them now. Yeah, me too. Let's just abandon this podcast and yep. go off and read Hitchhiker's Guide. Agreed. In fact, we'll read it to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> We're just doing a book on tape now. That's what's happening. No, I couldn't do that. That'd, that'd be awful. I, you don't want me to do that. Um, I'd get bored and, like, play the PlayStation halfway through or something like that. So, Rise Against. What are you rising against? Right. What I'm rising against involves Robocop Returns. Oh which, my god. What yeah. is this? This is a kind of reboot, but, but not entirely. It's a new Robocop movie that is going to act as a direct sequel to the original movie, in the same way that the most recent Halloween movie did. Well, the, the thing I'm actually rising against about it is the news that it is no longer going to be directed by Neil Blomkamp. Oh, uh, so that was the last I heard of it. Yeah. Blomkamp was doing it. Yes, and for anyone on I mean, he's a South African director who directed uh, District 9, Elysium, and Chappie, all of which I, I really enjoyed, aside from Chappie having a really, really stupid title that has always bugged me. Yeah, I didn't like Elysium. I like his other two films, though. He's got a very good eye for domestic-level science fiction. It's this kind of down-and-dirty, grassroots-type stuff. And, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. District 9 makes you really hate the humans. Chappie kind of makes you hate the humans a bit but it's more about the existential nature of life and everything. I mean I think Chappie had too many ideas, I think that was its problem and I think that's why it was kind of widely criticised and I absolutely loved it but I think it should have maybe focused on one or two big ideas and instead of throwing it all in I feel like there's four or five films worth of stuff in there. And another quite encouraging thing about this film is that it's being based on a spec script that was written in the late 80s by Edward Newmyer and Michael Miner, who were the writers of the original Robocop movie. And so I think that would maintain the themes and the satire of the original film that the sequel miserably failed to. And I think creating something like that on screen in modern day is something that Camp would do really, really well. So I'm very disappointed that he's now not going to do it. I actually don't mind the original Robocop 2. It's alright. Robocop 3, not so much. But Robocop 2 has its moments, certainly. As long as it gets rid of that stupid reboot that we had. Let's forget about that completely. I mean, that's... Ugh, doesn't bear thinking about how bad yes. that is. So have they got a director for this one yet? No, as far as I'm aware, no. Right, so Blomkamp's just not doing it anymore for an undisclosed reason. Oh, no, the reason... It was, I think it was to do with some kind of delay in production, and it was a horror movie that he was eager to, to get started on. So oh, he okay. decided that he's going to do, do that instead. It doesn't have much luck with the franchise stuff. Alien fell through for him as well. He was supposed to do an Alien film. Yeah, and that would have been amazing. And instead we got Alien Covenant. Yeah, I think I'm actually okay with him not doing franchise stuff. I mean, as much as I want to see a new Robocop film set in the the universe of the first film. Kind of want to see Blomkamp make his own stuff. I mean, he's one of those rare directors that's managed, like, three of his own things that have, you know, got a decent budget behind them and had mass market appeal to some degree. So I think he should stick to that rather than 
getting lost in franchises that, in fairness, no one really cares about anymore. I mean, does anyone care about Alien anymore? I certainly don't. Despite the fact that this podcast is an annual Alien <laughs> podcast, but we're getting, we're getting into the dreck now. So, like, we're Alien versus Predators next year, which is the one I'm really looking Whoa. forward to talking about. I'll, I'll be the person that defends it. I quite like it, but that's for next year. Tune in next April and you'll find out why I like Alien vs. Predator. And then Robocop, again, like, after the third one, did anyone really want any more Robocop after the TV series? Not really. Especially after the bloody reboot, no one wants it. There's, no one cares about Robocop anymore. As a property, it's it's something that was very, very specific to the 80s. And part of the problem with the remake was the attempt to update it, as well as completely sanitising the like the violence and pretty much ignoring the satirical elements of it yeah so having something like that in the modern day i think it could work but you need to be very very careful how you deployed it because it would be very easy to do quite badly yeah it could be insanely topical at the moment i mean a lot of the things have become more prevalent since the original you know it's getting to the point where these things that science fiction authors and directors and writers and whatever were writing off as worst case scenarios and poking fun at them are like no these are very real possibilities now maybe not to the same extent but you know you see it happening everywhere i mean there's the joke that robocop is set in a futuristic detroit that's like crime ridden and whatever otherwise known as you know modern day detroit exactly and there's no robocop to save modern day detroit that we know of robocop podcast one day has to happen it's a retro thing i would do that i'd be up for that definitely we will yeah, so parts that for now. Yes, it would give me an excuse to rewatch it. Yeah, as if you need one. Exactly. <laughs> so Blomkamp not doing Robocop is bad. Agreed. It is. Although it's possibly good that we'll get more of his time spent on original projects that he actually cares about, that he can build from the ground up and things like that. Yes, that's also good. Yes. Yeah. Perspectively. Could be a good thing. We'll see. Pretty sure that whatever they churn out for this Robocop sequel will just be a generic, by the numbers, piece of nonsense that won't be remembered two weeks after it comes out. That's my prediction. It's the way it usually goes, isn't it? Sadly, yes, actually. Yeah. Okay. My Rise Against. Very recent news. Very sad news. They've cancelled Krypton. A show that I was adoring, especially this season. Absolutely loved this season. The season finale had me literally on the edge of my seat. Well, not literally. I mean, I was sat back in my recliner chair, but figuratively on the edge of my seat because they just threw so much in. Loved it. And they cancelled it the day after they aired the finale. Or the day after I watched the finale. Like two days after they aired the finale. So, screw you, Sci-Fi Channel or whoever's responsible for this because... It was Sci-Fi. Scumbags. It probably cost them too much because it was a very good looking show. I think the the main reason was it wasn't pulling in enough viewers. You have to advertise your show otherwise people won't watch it. There is that, yes. But but, uh, this time around that, that seemed to be something they didn't quite grasp. Yeah, absolutely yeah. guide though. Love it. I love the show. But if I'm being honest, I wasn't hugely impressed by the first season because it came off just like a kind of generic comic book tie-in, cash-in kind of thing, which didn't have very much new to say for itself. But then with the second season, the whole Civil War angle, I thought was done absolutely spectacularly. And for every episode, I was enjoying it more and more. And also, at the risk of contradicting myself, I also quite like the seeds they were putting in to connect it to the larger... DC Universe, particularly with the inclusion of Lobo, because he is one of my favourite ever characters. I just absolutely love him, and it was great to see him in live action. Yeah, and Emmett Scanlon was excellent. 
in the role. Yeah, he just captured the, the whole character perfectly. His swaggering arrogance and utter self-assurance in himself and complete contemptuous disregard for anybody who isn't him. Yeah. It was just brilliant. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying about the first season. I think early on it was slightly unambitious, or it seemed that way, but I wonder how much of that is you need to conform to this idea of being a Superman prequel kind of thing, and then by the time you get to the middle of the first season, so about three, four episodes in, which is just before the middle, you, they start introducing all these elements that are unique to itself. Got the best version of General Zod I've ever seen in live action. That is true, yes. By far the best. And, you know, he was there in season one. Yeah, he's just, he's great from beginning to end. It's not all lost. They might be shopping it out to some streaming services, see if they want it. But if it wasn't pulled in the viewers, I can't see anybody who actually wanting it, which is a shame. But we'll see. You know, they saved Lucifer, they saved The Expanse, they saved Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They've saved so many shows on, on streaming services these days, so there might be hope for the future in this one. I mean, there is a DC streaming service, <laughs> at least for now. Maybe that'll pick it up. I guess time will tell. And this is a good time for me to plug my interview with Sean Sipos, which will be live by the time you listen to this. He was able to talk to us the day after the announcement uh, of the cancellation, so he, his words about that are quite moving, it has to be said, so that's something I listen to. So at the time of recording, I haven't edited it yet, but by the time you're listening, it will have been the magic of time travel. Insert running joke about time travel podcast here. Yes, we're always out of time somewhat, which is fitting. We recently talked about Legion. Uh, because that's always all over the place. Anyway, Krypton's dying, sadly. It's getting destroyed before it should be destroyed, both literally and figuratively. So, there we go. That's a shame. But there might be hope. So, we'll see. Okay, so shall we move on to our featured topic? Let's do the thing. Yeah, let's move on and talk about iZombie. <laughs> TV series about a zombie. Uh, oh, you want more? And uh, other, other zombies. And other zombies. Yes, it's about several zombies. The sh- detective show where the central character eats the brains of murdered people and absorbs quirks of their personality as well as gets visions of their memories which helps her solve the crime. We're specifically going to talk about the final season, although I do think we should come back at some point and talk about the earlier seasons because we've never talked about it before and some of that earlier stuff is just incredible. We'll probably touch on it as we go here. I mean, I have no idea. I haven't had the conversation yet, so we'll see. Shall we just launch straight into spoilers because we're going to do an approach that's probably not conducive to not spoiling it? I think that's the best idea, yes. Cool. I guess we'll just start with a bit of a summary, I guess, of our connection to the show. So what's your connection to the show as a whole? I never really had any specific connection to the show other than just becoming aware of it while it was in production. I am uh, aware of that it's loosely based on a series of comics, which somehow in the last five years I still haven't got around to reading yet. Emphasis on loosely. I've read the first like, volume and... They're entirely different. Yeah, when I found out about it, I, I did write a brief preview thing for Starburst. It's just this thing is incoming. And the description that I did of it was based on, on what I skimmed from Wikipedia uh, about the general plot and tone of it, which turned out to be massively inaccurate. 
aside from the very basic concept. But still, when I started watching it, it quickly became one of my favourite shows. I do have some very, very big internal rankings of all TV shows that I watch, and, and on top of which, the ones that I savour coming around to watch, because I, I know I'm pretty much going to enjoy them, uh, and I don't want them to be over too quickly, and have to wait for more of them. And iZombie has always been one of those ones. And to start out, it was it was a show that I was watching by myself because if I waited for for my wife Jana to watch everything with her, then I would never get anything watched. <laughs> so, uh, somewhere through the third season, like she she discovered it and binged all of it about a fortnight. And so since then, we're watching it together. I'm pretty much always enjoying it together as well. And while I am sad that it's come to an end, I'm glad they had the opportunity to go on, on its own terms. Because for a while, it was a bit touch and go whether it was going to get given the final season or not. Yeah. And I'm glad that it has. And we can now talk about it. Yeah. My connection goes back to when I first kind of heard that it was in development, hearing that, you know, Rob Thomas and the team behind Veronica Mars were making a new show. And I was like, what, sign me up for that? Like, I don't even know what it's about. I'll watch it. Veronica Mars is an amazing show. Absolutely love it. So when I heard that iZombie was a thing that was about to exist, I kept in touch with it. I kept up with it. And then eventually it appeared. And... It was just this relentlessly charming, hilarious show that, you know, it's very formulaic, but it does really fun things with it formula. I didn't mind the formula because it was so entertaining. Rose McIver is an absolute find in terms of acting talent, the ability she has to kind of keep the live character in the forefront while putting little bolt-ons to her personality, depending on what brain she's on that week. And her ability to just keep doing that week on week, challenge after challenge would just constantly impress me you know that's justifies watching the show in itself just to see what she's going to do next and i think that's the hook throughout the seasons they added a bit more mythology and i think it's so weird to say but i think it's earlier formulaic days were better than it's more arc driven larger scale days and we'll definitely get into that when we discuss this season because that's one of the problems i would say i mean i know it has to become bigger than itself to stop being this procedural every week why am i watching this where is it actually going but I think they had some legitimately interesting character arcs they were following that kept building week on week. And some of the smaller scale stories were really good, like Major trying to track down where all the missing kids were going, and that led him to Blaine, which connected him to the larger story. And then, you know, it made everything feel like it all fit together. And I think they lost their way a bit in later seasons with that. But at the same time, they never really lost the heart of the show. You know, you would get that episode where... Liv consumes the right brain and it's just riotous laughter from start to finish. So yeah, I know the show a lot in terms of, I guess this podcast might not exist if it wasn't for it. Because I remember way back in season one, Malcolm Goodwin retweeted one of my reviews. Malcolm Goodwin playing Clive and an eye zombie, for those that don't know. Although, why are you still listening if you don't really know that? It's a good question. He retweeted, so I decided to thank him for doing that because it was one of the earliest famous people retweets I'd ever had, so I was quite chuffed. And he replied with, no problem, great review, or something along those lines. And I was like, oh my god. He's like, not just like casually scrolling through Twitter and retweeting, you know, but so I messaged him, I was like, how would you like to come on and do an interview? And he was like, yeah, sure. I was like, oh crap, what do I do about that? I didn't have a podcast at the time. I'd never really done an interview before. So, what do you do? So I put together some questions and Skyped him recorded it and I'll re-listen to the interview a couple of weeks ago and oh god it's terrible and not in terms of his contribution but me I'm not very good 
you know, my, my questions are pretty basic. I mean, I think he expands on them really nicely, but I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember sitting on Skype. I've still got him added on Skype, weirdly. I mean, I'll never message him because that's just creepy. I saw him on Skype. I saw he was online. And I was like, oh, no, he's there. What did I do? Oh, what did I do? And I messaged him with B5 minutes. <laughs> you know, because I needed to compose myself. And then did the interview. He was lovely to talk to. He told me he thought I was a great writer, which, you know, made me blush, I will admit. And um, so that's that. So from there, I've done interviews since. And I'm slightly less nervous. So I would love to talk to him again if I ever get a chance to. It's a really long story, but it's, that's how important this show is to me. That's what it's done for me. And I'll always be grateful to Malcolm for helping with that, even if he doesn't have any idea of how much he helped me with that. So yeah, that's my connection to the show. Okay, so shall we move on to talk about season five, season final? That is what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Ultimately. So anybody that's listened to the Arrowverse stuff from the end of last season uh, will be kind of familiar with this format that we tried back then for talking about season things so we're going to employ our Neil Before Rise Against feature in a more analytical way when it comes to talking about a season of television so we're going to pick a few things each, Rise Against, Neil Before stuff and then use that to generate our discussion. So on the Arrowverse ones I made the mistake of doing it in the wrong order and not keeping track of it very well and ending on negative points. So this time I'm going to flip the script and try and let us end on more positive points. Because I like ending on a positive. I don't like going away with the last thing I ever say about iZombie Season 5 being a negative thing. Uh, so let's try and be a bit more positive. Positive people live longer, apparently. Did you know that? I had heard it. I remain sceptical, purely because I need to. <laughs> purely because I'm just negative about that statement. I can't believe it's true. So there we go. Uh, would you like to start us off with one of your rise againsts for the season? One of the things I'm rise against is the new characters who were introduced in the season. It's not, not the, the characters specifically that I would have had issues with. It was more to do with them not having the time or space to be properly developed. So with uh, characters like Charlie, the CDC doctor that the Ravi was video chatting with, or the Freilix uh, suffered Darcy, who Donnie ended up in a relationship with, it kind of seemed they, they weren't there to be actual characters that were in to serve a specific purpose to the narrative. And there didn't seem to be uh, very, very much interest in properly developing them and making them people that we would ultimately be interested in or invested in, partly because they knew that the series was going to be ending. So perhaps they felt that portraying them in anything greater than the surface, superficial manner just wasn't necessary. Yeah, I remember when Charlie was introduced in the first episode, I was like, okay, she'll be important. She'll be Ravi's eyes and ears within the CDC. She'll be that kind of conduit and then you're about halfway through the season she's never been seen since other than a couple of like one scene appearances and i was like why did you introduce her surely there's enough at the cdc that you could have just had your token background opposition within the cdc it was very weird and then when they brought her sister in her twin sister yeah that was also weird i would say darcy got a bit more i think the actor that played her enhanced that character in really profound ways just through her performance. I think you got more of a sense of who she was than maybe was written on the page. She benefited with a bit more screen time and maybe her relationship with Donnie was a bit quick. But I think that was sort of the point as well. So, well, I might as well do this quickly. I'm going to be dead in like a week, so it doesn't matter. Exactly, because she's someone who knows that she's effectively living on borrowed time, so she doesn't have anything to be gained from being cautious. Yeah, and then Isabel was a much better example of that in the previous season. But 
Yeah, when you add it into the mosaic of everything that needs to happen in this season to wrap it all up and you're wasting time with these characters that are ultimately fairly pointless. I see what you're saying. I think they should have either limited it to just one maybe new character or just not bothered. Right, I'm going to move on to a Neil Before. Let's be a bit positive. I'm going to Neil Before the dancing episode. That was my favourite episode of the season. Just so good. And it's what I was talking about earlier. It's that Liv can be on a brain and it can make or break an episode. And in this case, it completely made it. And I like that it didn't take easy way out because you had two murder victims. You had this dancing competition. They could have easily just had Ravi be on his monthlies, as he calls them, and had him eat the other brain and then they become like dance fiends. But I think it really worked that Liv was the enthusiastic dancer and then Ravi was the reluctant one, and that montage of teaching them how to dance was delightful. And finding out that Clive was a great dancer as well. I always like it when you get a bit of insight into Clive's background. And like, when did he become a dancer? When did he learn this? It's just, you'll never know, but it makes sense for him. And it was just brilliant. I think everything from the, the rehearsal stuff to the actual dance routine at the end was beautifully done. The fact that Liv switches brains halfway through and it, she changes from being really pushy to be more supportive as well. That was a nice touch. We rarely see her on more than one brain in a given episode and I like that it was the same focus but in a different way. That was a nice touch. A very, very well done. So yeah, that was by far my favourite episode. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And it's also quite like, in a more general sense, it being a situation where Liv and Ravi were on, on, on break together, because uh, that was something that wasn't seen very often. It's something I, I thought I thought would have a, a great deal of potential, given the character dynamics that, that it opens up. Yeah, and then throwing Clive in there. It's always good to add Clive to the mix. Always. One of the great things about Clive is to just uh, because he's generally so taciturn about, about his personal history, then you could have him have done pretty much anything because it would hardly ever counter something previously he might have said about himself because he says so little about himself. Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty of it. So I was willing to accept that he's a good dancer and he somehow <laughs> learned that at some point. Who knows when? Who knows why? But Just because. Yeah. And why not? Why not? Raul Coley is amazing that these kind of deadpan, you can't make me do this sort of responses. And when Liv abandons him in the middle of the routine, (laughs) (laughs) oh god. (laughs) But it also gives me hope that anyone can be taught to dance because I can't dance, although I've never really had any training to help me find any rhythm that might be locked within me. But suffice to say, it's not in there so far. So maybe one day I'll find myself in a random dance competition and someone will tie my shoelaces together and walk me through a few simple steps. We can but dream. We can but dream indeed. So that's the first nail before. I realised that I'd be chucking you a negative again, so I'm just going to flip it again and make you do a nail. Be positive again. Sticking with the subject of favourite episodes, I am going to go for the one when Liv became a private detective from Hardboiled Noir. <laughs> it was just hilarious. And I particularly like after the detective brain kicked in, all the colour in the image started to wash out, and then all the shadows and lighting was suddenly intensified, as if the episode had suddenly been transported to a noir film from the 1940s. And just the way that she was acting while she was in the brain, just very deadpan and world-weary and cynical about everything, it was just hilarious to hear coming out of the mouth of a 20-something girl. And it does feed into a larger thing I've enjoyed about the series, in that despite having a main arc story to 
deal with and also the show itself to conclude they still took the time to include these subplots of live on various brains and getting out to the same comedic misadventures while on them so it shows that for all the mistakes they made with the final season, that they were aware that that's what people really enjoy about the show, so they made a conscious effort to continue it. Yeah, I thought that episode was good fun. They went too far in trying to explain why it was kind of a more noir atmosphere. It's like, there's been a power cut, or it's the worst thunderstorm we've had in years, or whatever. It's like, I'm okay with it. You don't need to waste lines of dialogue explaining to me why it's like that. I seem to remember it's just more played as a joke, but it doesn't end up being all that useful in terms of moving the plot forward. Although there's some funny lines about investigating stuff and it's like, the dead don't give us any clues and Ravi's like, it is literally our job <laughs> to, to investigate corpses and find clues. <laughs> Again, that's another example of Ravi doing stuff. And I really like the on-the-nose explanation of Ravi and Clive's role within the framework that is built around Liv. It's like, I'm the underappreciated yet brilliant partner or whatever it is he said. And actually, there's no difference to what's normal. And then Clive's like, you're the disapproving police gets in our way it's like yeah that's pretty accurate as well so little references to yeah we're aware that this is our formula and we're going to laugh at our formula but we're also going to deliver a tale that kind of exaggerates those roles a little bit but not overly and then when they put blaine on a similar brain so he talks like that in the middle of the episode as well that was really good yeah there's a very fine line between self-parody and just complete farce yeah. But I think they definitely managed to stay on the right side of it and stopped it from becoming too over the top. Yeah, definitely. And then you got to see the fight between Blaine and Liv in that episode. That was really cool. Yeah, it was quite satisfying, actually. Yeah, and I like the fact that they're both rubbish because <laughs> they're not trained to fight. They're just kind of wailing on each other. Because I really hate it when they suddenly become ninjas when they have to fight. You know, it's all like really well choreographed and... Uh, it's really well choreographed in the sense that it looks scrappy and rough and terrible. You know, there's no skill involved. But there's a lot of skill in making it look like there's no skill. Exactly. It is a bit ironic, I think, that it can be difficult to convincingly do something badly. Yeah. Worth thinking about. Yeah, that was a good one. Nice choice. So I'm going to bite off a bit of a rise here. I'm just going to rise against Martin. Because I didn't see the point in this guy whatsoever. Well, I kind of saw the point in them and I knew what the show wanted to do with them. But I also didn't see the point in having them there. I mean, we're in season five. Does anyone really care about Liv's dad by this point? I mean, we've not seen our families in season two. Or is it season one? I think it was like the, the very beginning of season two when they, they cut off ties with her because she wouldn't think donate blood or bone marrow to, to her brother after the explosion at the end of season one because, yeah. because it would reveal her as, as a zombie, but people didn't know about them then. Yeah. So it was around about that time. It's early on in the show anyway, where the parents, where her mum disappears, where her brother disappears and all of this. For a while I was like, are they just not going to address this? And then after a while I was like, okay, they're not going to address it. I'm just going to stop worrying about it since they're not worried about it. Then they just bring it back because it's the final season. You have to deal with families and suddenly her dad is the first zombie because of course he is. He creates the zombie yeah. virus. And then he's an addict that Liv kind of tries to get off his addiction and it doesn't really work, although some bits of it is okay, such as her constantly being disappointed by him, him failing to live up to what she wants from him, her inability to let herself have a relationship with him, at least initially. She pushes him away, then brings him back, and then finds that her concerns are warranted, and then pushes him away again until you get to the point where he's trying to redeem himself, but then he gets killed. 
And at that point, I'm just not caring because I don't have any reason to assume he's been sincere because he never has been up until this point. He's always kind of said what Liv wants to hear and then went along with what she wanted to do for a while. Meanwhile, he's plotting behind the scenes to raise an army of controlled Romero zombies for reasons that we still don't know that much about. It just, it was something he was doing for whatever reason. And then he gets killed by Enzo. No one cares about him either. And as good as Rose McIver's performance is, it doesn't really work. It also doesn't help that she isn't in the room with him at the time. She's looking at him through a laptop screen. And there's a lot of that in this season as well. I mean, it's almost a rise against point on its own, but there's a lot of conversations that happen through screens and the actors aren't there bouncing off each other and it's hard to be invested in the scene because they're not together. And that's almost the folly of modern technology in these types of shows where you just don't get that emotional resonance. So Liv gets to see her dad die from a distance on a screen. And I didn't really care about him before that point. So I didn't see the point in introducing him. His plan was flimsy and poorly laid out, so why was he there? Yeah, I'm pretty much the same with my attitude towards him. I can kind of see what their intent was, because I think that their idea was in a show where the essential character is a zombie, and it turns out that her dad is responsible for creating the zombies, then I think the idea was that we would have some kind of symmetry. But for whatever reason, the idea wasn't thought through properly, or it just simply wasn't written well enough. This just didn't actually come across. And as you said, uh, Martin just ended up being the character who we've not sure we've like ever even thought about throughout the whole series. I can't remember if in the first season Liv's absent dad was ever a thing, if it was ever even mentioned, but certainly by this point he's not somebody who we'd actually care about, and his introduction seemed like another one of the several extraneous ideas they had for the series that they threw in and ended up cluttering things. I'm not sure if I missed this or kind of forgot about it, but he was supposed to be a new boss, wasn't he? Well, that certainly seemed to be the implication when he was first introduced. Because you first see him sort of silhouetted in a car, and they call him New Boss. So I'm not sure what happened, if they just changed their minds, or they realised they didn't know what to do with him going in that that direction, but then then after a while he just, it seemed like he had considerably less power and control influence than it was initially suggested that he he did. Yeah, big mistake. One too many villains, because they had Dolly, and they had, I guess, Enzo, but not really. I mean, he was rubbish as well, so didn't really develop anybody all that well and Martin was kind of taking up a lot of screen time and then just was unceremoniously offed so he was pointless which is a shame I mean I think they did a good enough job with the whole estranged father thing you know there was some really good stuff in there but on the whole it wasn't really worth the amount of time it took up and if you're going to introduce Martin you probably have to do it a season earlier just so he's a fixture by the time building up to your end point. Yeah, because if he's a character that we're ultimately supposed to care about, as was suggested by the end, then he's someone who we'd need to spend a lot more time with, and given some reasons to actually care about him beyond the compassion that Liv shows him, because that's who she is. Yeah, we're agreed. Martin, pointless. Why did you do it? Here we go. Do you want to give us another Neil? One thing I'd like to kneel against is to, to do with the human-zombie conflict, which was building up the character series. A specific aspect of it that I quite liked. To do with Enzo and, and Dolly. I do accept that neither of them were particularly compelling characters. But what I did like about the dynamic was that, despite them both being on diametrically opposite sides of a conflict, they were both portrayed as being in the wrong, and both as contemptuous 
hateful people who aren't supposed to sympathise in any way with. And to me, that was included to suggest that as a general way of looking at most conflicts, is that there aren't really right or wrong sides. There's just people whose commanders have decreed that they should be killing each other, and there are soldiers engaging in skirmishes, and ordinary people getting caught in the middle, and ultimately nobody comes out on top. And in the end, it all seems a pointless waste of life. And I thought that was... It isn't a perspective that you often see in films depicting war and conflict. There's usually like very, very clear-cut heroes and villains on the opposing sides. Whereas here, the heroes were the people who didn't want there to be any fighting in the first place. Yeah, and it's absolutely a reference to what's going on in America. I mean, kind of globally as well, but specifically in the US at this point, where we are getting a lot of hate being spread. A disproportionate amount of it just getting spread around. Everything is just... Everything's going to pot, really, uh, in that respect. And what a zombie's stance on it is, that is not a good thing. doesn't matter what side you're on, you should not be peppering hate throughout society. It's not productive, it's terrible, and it makes you turn into sort of these guys. And I would see this sort of zombie attack, you know, the Romero zombie attack. I forget what they attacked, it was some kind of public event towards the end of the series. You know, that's your school shooting, isn't it? Yeah. their equivalent. So, yeah, they were kind of beating us over the head with this metaphor, but you also kind of have to beat people over the head with it to kind of make them understand that we don't think this is a good thing. We're not going to stand for... Well, I mean, I suppose that the show isn't doing anything about that to stop it, but it's that you shouldn't stand for this, and if everybody spreads hate, doesn't matter what direction, this is what will happen in the end. They didn't have the budget to show the kind of riot at the end, you know, this war that apparently broke out on the streets. They didn't have the budget to show that beyond a couple of little skirmishes, but at the same time, it gives you some idea of where it could head if things don't smarten up, if people don't smarten up, if these people who make it their lot in life to spread hate don't stop. And then I suppose you get that personified through these two characters who, well, one of them gets their comeuppance, kind of. Because Enzo doesn't survive. Although Dolly does. Yeah, last we save her, she shoots a sign in the head. Yeah. And I'm really not quite clear what that was supposed to imply. Yes, it's telling us that she is an utterly hateful human being who, who will willfully murder a- anybody on the other side of an arbitrary divide, but we already knew that about her. Yeah, and then her son was introduced so late in it anyway that didn't have the time to play with it. Yeah, it was another one of those things that didn't quite come together. Yeah, I did like the kind of high-level side of it. As in, here's your framework that you can play with. And I think with a little more work, they could have really turned it into something. Unfortunately, they didn't have the time or it seems the inclination to give that what it deserved because there was just so much else going on. As a kind of sub of that, I'm going to rise against the whole metaphor of zombies being persecuted minorities. It's bafflingly insensitive. They're likening them to the sort of civil rights movement, black people in America looking for equal rights and things like that, and it just wasn't that. And they even used some of the catchphrases, you know, like zombie lives matter and all this kind of stuff. And most of these zombies are white people. (laughs) And most of them are. And you can't see that that's a little bit off, that you're parading around saying these things. And I'm not saying the sentiment is wrong because it's absolutely right in terms of the, 
yeah, you shouldn't be persecuting against these people just because they happen to have an illness that means that they have to eat brains to sustain themselves. And if they don't, they'll become these murderous, uncontrollable things that come after you. But at the same time, they're not slaves. They're not any of those kind of minorities that the world has persecuted over the centuries of human history. So as much as they tried to make that land, it couldn't land for me ever. And every time they touched on it, I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it. I've really got nothing to add to that. There is quite a bit about this season that was very heavy-handed, though that particular aspect of it just went a bit too far. Yeah. See what you're doing, but you're not doing it well enough. They could have been a little less heavy-handed with it, as you say. You could have got the persecution aspect in without trying to liken it to the civil rights movement. You know, there was no uh, Martin Luther King in here. And nor should there have been. Okay, so would you like to give us another Neil? I have a system here. It's even noted down. It's amazing. Continuing the observation of, of heavy-handed allegory, I liked what, what they're doing with having the wall around Seattle as a representation of the US border policy. And with Liv becoming someone who organises smuggling people past the wall, representation of the illegal border crossings. I think that, that some people are that some people are forced to undertake purely because whatever is on the other side that they want to be on is preferable to the situation that, that they're currently in. In this case, whether that's being inside Seattle or out of it, depending on individual circumstance. And I think that portraying that as as things that the people are doing purely because they have no other option is an important perspective to get across. Because quite a lot of people are under the belief that the people cross the border of the US like practically on a whim um, again, and it's not it's not something sorry, that they think about because they're just there to be lazy and greedy or whatever the dismissive catchphrase of the, of the day is yeah, but do you see people portrayed as crossing borders legally for reasons of necessity might make them think that perhaps that might be applicable to everyday reality as well yeah the renegade plot was an interesting one I think they handled it a lot better last season where Liv was more directly involved in the whole thing. But I might as well just toss in my next Rise Against in amongst this, you know, combine them, sort of. I think the spirit of it is fine. It's, you know, here's what we want to come across, here's the message that we want to provide, here's a spotlight we want to shine on people most in need, that kind of thing. But the problem was, Liv wasn't involved in it for most of the season. So it'd be either something you'd hear about, or it'd be something you'd... You'd kind of see, but there'd be another character doing it. So Liv's involvement is very retracted. You know, you don't see her scratching people and then being thankful or anything like that. At least not very often. And then there's points, especially towards the end of the season, where she turns up at her little hideout and she's like, what's been going on? And she has to be filled in on everything that's been happening ever since they last saw her, which was probably weeks ago for the most part. I also think they portrayed it as being too easy some of the time. I mean, you had the one where, I forget his name, uh, Frank's, Francis Capra plays him, who gets killed. Kind of off-screen almost. Weevil from Veronica Mars, that guy. And, you know, you see him do more, but all you really see is Liv emerging from the closet with people in tow, and you don't really get a sense of what it took to get them there. So, again, it's one of those things. You've got a really good idea here. I see what you're trying to do. But you don't have the time to follow it through to its, its natural conclusion. You don't have time to really explore what that means. Like, what does it mean to live other than it being one of the many hats she has to wear throughout the run of the season? You don't really get the sense of that, especially when they bring the Freelick kids in. It's like, okay, what do these mean to anybody? 
They're just a bunch of extras sitting around a table who have this rare disease, apparently. And even then, that's Ravi and Major that bring them in. So again, it's nothing to do with Liv at that point. Although it is good to see Ravi and Major hang around and do a mission together. That's good fun. But at the same time, should Liv be more involved in that? Maybe she should have been a part of that plot. I mean, what was she doing instead? Trying to redeem Martin? Is that worth it? Not really. So there's good and bad in there. I think it's one of those concept versus execution things. The concept was absolutely excellent. The execution, not so much. I think that part of the whole people smuggling thing uh, not being portrayed in very much detail was because they couldn't quite figure out how to do it. I never quite established quite how the wall was built so quickly that the people ended up trapped behind it, like on, on, on whatever side they didn't want to be on. And so to show that in any great detail might have drawn attention to the fact that it may not have been possible for it to have been constructed so quickly. So, so I think it was something they, they needed to continually gloss over and, and hope that nobody noticed. Yeah, how did they stop the zombies getting out of Seattle before they built the wall? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, why is there no zombies outside of Seattle at all? That doesn't make any sense, that kind of stuff. Maybe they were just like, oh, don't look over here, guys. Don't <laughs> mind us. Just building a wall. Forget about it. I guess, I mean, I never really thought about that. That's an interesting perspective because you get into season four and the wall's already built. Yeah, it was just one of those things that, that, that always bugged me, how it was never addressed, how they got it up so fast. Yeah, something to mull over, I guess, in the next decade until they do a Veronica Mars-style kickstarter and bring it all back. Mm-hmm. Would you like to descend us into a rise? I am absolutely rise against the ending, specifically the climax of the finale, which saw Liv lying on sofa in the police station after having not really done a whole hell of a lot for the rest of the episodes. She was yes. on a plane, she got a woman a drink. And then Michelle Randy turns up, and and then unseen suicide bomber what her place. And we're suddenly 10 years in the future. And that really, really bugged me. If it had stayed in the present, then it wouldn't have ended cleanly or neatly in any way. Well, it was fairly inevitable it was going to end with the creation and distribution of the zombie cure. But I would have preferred it if the ending had, had stayed in the present and there was still the prospect of getting things back to something resembling normal for everybody who wants to be cured has been cured. And I just... Like the idea of the characters looking towards the future, like it was uncertain, so that they wouldn't have been sure what it was going to be like, but they, they're hopeful about the prospect of what it held, while at the same time acknowledge there's still quite a lot of work to be done to fix everything. Whereas what the time jump did with having Alan Ravi and Peyton be interviewed by the future equivalent of a vlogger, and looking back on the Warner streets that we never really saw. It seemed like they, they were just looking back on a single moment. Everything was, was suddenly solved with the creation of the zombie cure, and to me that seems it's too tidy and too neat, and I'm just not convinced that that's any way that it would have happened. And to end the show like that, it was too sudden, and didn't really give you any time to, to properly absorb everything that had happened, for suddenly having this new status quo thrust at you, that you had to immediately assimilate so you could appreciate the ending. I agree with you in terms of the time jump was super jarring. It was mid-shot almost, it was ridiculous. What we'll do is we'll come back to the ending once we've dealt with all the Neils and Rises, because I think it bears discussing in kind of its entirety, but it was rushed, and it was problematic, and there's all sorts of issues with it. So we'll come back to that, absolutely. Keep that in mind, and then we'll definitely discuss that in more detail, because it is the ending podcast, so to speak, um, of a show we've never talked about before. Yay. So I'm going to drop us into a Neil, 
So we have some stuff left to cover. I'm going to just kneel before Blaine in general. I think he's been consistently great throughout the series. And I think for this season in particular, he's really good. Especially when they introduced Al. And I'm really disappointed that they got rid of her so quickly. But I also really like what they did with her. I like that she managed to get under his skin and challenge the real him. He was kind of trying to be a bit more vulnerable, be a bit more of himself with her. And then it turns out she was playing him the whole way. And it made him become more of this kind of monstrous version of himself. So he had this arc where everything was being torn away from him. So he lost his money, he lost his hold over Seattle. He kind of lost his freedom because he had to sleep in Donnie's basement. His business had went under. The brains were being handled by someone else. Everything, like everything that just got torn away from him. Until it got to the point where Donnie betrayed him, threw him down a well. Which... Maybe an anticlimactic ending for Blaine, but also kind of satisfying in the respect of Donnie just had enough of being abused the whole time and just pushed him down a well, which tied into the all's well that ends well last episode of the title, which is cool. Like a wordplay. Yeah, hilarious. They're always good at that. So I really like the way that he was portrayed throughout the season and the way that, kind of the way that he ended up, because turning him into something that's more and more dangerous the more he loses was the right way to do it. And I really like that episode where it was from his perspective, he was narrating it. And it was, you know the deal, you know the situation, live a little brain, it'll help her solve the murder, yada, yada, yada. There's no surprises here. But the real story is this. And there's just little touches that I liked about it throughout the season as well. The bit where the teenage millionaire guy was having a party next door to him. And he just goes around and be like, if you don't cut this noise out, I will kill you. And then it's like, no, no, something like what you heard was, I won't be happy or whatever, but I will actually kill you. So yeah, Blaine, probably one of television's best antagonists in recent years, certainly. And I think they maybe have been chucked down the well without sharing a scene with Liv or Clive or Ravi or anyone else before he dies or is pushed aside. Is a bit of a disappointment, but at the same time, I like what they did with him for the most part. Yeah, I, I do I do quite like him as a villain because he has been portrayed so consistently and developed so well over the whole run of the show. I've always been interested in the way that he never sees himself as being as much of a villain as everybody else does. He seems to have this perception of himself that he is someone who deserves respect and interest from other people and the fact that they don't give him what he receives as his due is something that frustrates him. And kind of building on that, I thought that him end up being unceremoniously shoved down a well was quite a fitting end for him, because he's someone who has a steadfast belief in his own importance and his own magnificence. For him to be given such a meaningless and throwaway dispatching is actually uh, quite a fitting end for him, because it would frustrate him because of how pointless it was, and precisely because it didn't have any greater pathos or underlying significance to it. just didn't feel all that permanent to me, though. I mean, in this 10-year time jump that you've already talked about, it's not impossible that someone could go fish him out. You know, like a few days after the Civil War ends. I mean, he's probably got some loyalists kind of still out there, or someone that just wants to punish him. So what's to stop Stacey Boss from showing up and just retrieving him from the well to torture him in perpetuity? Possibly, yeah. Never really thought about that. Although being stuck with Donnie until you turn into, like, a Romero zombie, I can't think of any fate worse than that. Yeah, that's grim. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was intentional. Yeah. And the thing is, the thing you said about his respect, and or his craving for respect, it all feeds back to I mean, his, his daddy issues, you know, the fact that his dad never gave him that respect, and 
you know, there's how many villains out there are kind of baddie issues motivated. It's kind of dull, but the way they did it here was really good. And obviously they couldn't give you any real closure on that as such because Robert Nepper is a very, very bad man and can't be trusted on set. So, you know, whatever. Let's uh, let's just pan wave that away. We'll have him move swiftly on. Yeah, we'll have him killed. Fine. Blaine never gets closure. Cool. But I really thought they were onto something with Al. And they were onto something with Al. Yeah. Because he was trying to show her the real him. And you've never seen the real him before. He's always putting on a front of some sort. No, he is. Everything, everything that, he, that he does is, is, some, is some kind of act. Because he has this persona that he wants to portray for whatever person he's talking to at a given moment. And because she so thoroughly and utterly sees through all of his crap. And also because she is somebody who he was completely unable to intimidate in any way. But that would probably have been quite emotionally jarring for him. Because it's unlikely to be something he has much experience in. Yeah, and I can kind of see why they got rid of her so quickly as well because they had started her asking difficult questions that the show just wasn't equipped to answer at that point stuff like why do you just put up with what he's doing isn't he like a child murderer and it's like yeah but he's like necessary for brains coming into Seattle so we've kind of forgotten about that and it's like but you know he did like murder children and then he murdered more children yeah. and then he killed other people yeah. remember the time he shot your boyfriend in the head Liv remember yeah, that exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. and he's now kind of engaging in, in human trafficking and he was kind of responsible for selling the drugs that started all of this remember that Yeah. but never mind he's bringing brains in so we just put up with it that's fine but it was the way Al would just push buttons with everybody she spoke to although the weird thing about her was the way they just revealed she was a zombie was very casual well, there was no indication of that early on and suddenly you just saw her eating a brain. She had that vision at the right time and that was able to help her kind of move on to the next thing. Although it calls into question the rules of the universe this show lives in because Liv has a very pronounced personality change pretty much every time she eats a brain but Al didn't. So I wonder if there's a kind of degree of surrender happening there as well. Possibly, yeah. It would have been interesting if that's something that they thought to actually explore. But because there were very few instances of brain-eating outside of Liv's murder investigation, then it wasn't something that they gave themselves much scope to do. You saw Liv snap out of a extreme personality in a moment she kind of had to. So it suggests there was some kind of willpower involved, but they didn't really do anything to explore how all that works. So I suppose the episode where Al was involved where she consumed that brain. It was a more subdued brain episode anyway, but still. I would have liked to see a bit more of how all that works. Because they got it with the brain tubes. It's like, it's different brains mixed in, so there isn't enough in there to give you any kind of personality. It's like, okay, I accept that within the rules of the universe, but then they never seem to latch on to how much control Liv has. and Is she responsible for her actions when under the influence of a brain? I mean, yeah, but should she be, or should she be held accountable, or whatever else? Yeah. It's a difficult one. There was a clear development point there that they could have played with a bit more than they did. It's something that I would have liked to have seen more of, not specifically final season, but just throughout the whole show in general. I think they got to a point where, where they'd got into a rhythm with the show's formula, and to try to tweak it would have risked upsetting it and making things more complicated for themselves when they didn't need it to be. Yeah. I mean, it's only people like me that care about the minutiae of these things, I suppose. 
it's just something that I wonder about every time that she eats a brain. It's like, okay, it's affecting her in this way, but you get other ones that are kind of closer to her own baseline personality anyway. Or it just so happens that people that are murdered are just comically over the top. And that comes through in different yeah. ways. So. Yeah, one of my favourite all-time episodes was when she ate a brain of a librarian who was writing Kinky Erotica. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, and then she took on this whole dominatrix personality. <laughs> and that was hilarious. Yeah, I quite liked the one where she became like a real housewife. That was funny. Oh, God, I've forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many. I mean, we'll do a rewatch over the next year and then come back and talk about like our favourite eyes on me moments. Yep, sounds good. Yeah, I need to dive back into the series in its early days and remember some of the hilarious stuff that they did. Yeah, I should really be watching new shows, but I want to watch iZombie again, so leave me alone. Do you want to give us your final rise of the day, of the evening, of the whatever time period you happen to be listening? Well, it's another general thing that I'm right against. It's just a whole season overall seeming very, very rushed to me. They had an endpoint in sight, and because of that, everything that they were showing in the season had to work towards that. And it seemed to me that I wasn't enough time taken to do tell full and actual stories when the majority of what they were showing was required to serve the larger narrative. Perhaps if they had the, the space of a few more episodes, then they may have had the room to explore some of the myriad ideas that they dropped in, then properly resolved without, without much thought. I just think they tried to do too much too quickly, and because of that, it seemed like the pacing of the series was a bit off. Yeah, I've got a big list of kind of, maybe not a huge list, but I have a list of things that they sort of introduced and didn't have time to play with. So you had like Ivan Dale's pregnancy story that was then tied to the Michelle pregnancy story that it was just so weirdly done because you got to the point where Michelle had had the baby off screen and they just mention it periodically. And it was like, hang on a minute, you were doing this whole, is Clive the dad? Is he not? Does it matter? And then suddenly she's had the baby and they're just kind of helping with that, waiting for Dale to have her baby, which she obviously she does in the last episode. Because of course. Yeah, well, got to have it sometime, I suppose. So that was weird. I mean, Michelle was poorly handled anyway throughout. Yeah, really, really, really badly. Yeah, and she just dies unceremoniously at the end, which is even worse. Just to give a possible reason for Clive and Dale to end up with her kid. Yeah. That might be Clive's as well. Yeah, who knows. I've already mentioned the owl thing like, kind of disappearing very quickly. There's also, connected to that, you've got the Stacey Boss return. There's a guy yeah. that just keeps coming back, and I was like, okay, he comes back, and then he wants to get in on the brain smuggling game, and then kind of does, but kind of doesn't. Teams up with Don E, but kind of does, kind of doesn't. He's there for an episode or two, and then he's gone again. What happened yeah. to him? Where did yeah. he go? Yeah, because it was almost like they just forgot about him. Yeah. Or they couldn't think of any particular resolution for his character that would fit in, in the context of what they were doing with the season. Yeah, so they shouldn't have bothered bringing him back. That was pointless. I guess it was to give someone as powerful and as charismatic as Blaine to offer as an alternative. So the Fillmore Grave stuff was fine, although... The problem with that is Major spends most of his time sitting off on the side, which means he doesn't interact with the other characters as much, which is a shame, because Major was always so good. And I, I actually prefer Civilian Major as a plot anyway. I think he's much more fun when he's a bit scrappy and involved with the with his friends, 
Whereas I don't necessarily buy him as the, the full Fillmore Graves boss guy. So that was a problem. But yeah, just so much going on. So much for one season. 13 episodes. It's like, I don't know. I've been talking about this in the past couple of podcasts, actually, because I talked about The 100, which was great. Not its final season, but it will be next season. And talked about Legion, which just finished its final season. And it's like, endings are hard. And almost the worst thing you can do is tell someone, here's your final season. Do it. Because what you get is they just try and wrap everything up. In some ways it doesn't feel organic. I mean, can you imagine if iZombie had just been renewed for a fifth season and then just ended? Hmm. You know, and you, you ended with all these unanswered questions. Kind of okay with that. It's when they try and answer the questions very quickly and very haphazardly that it becomes a problem, I think. So what you have is you have this season that has, yes, it has a finality to it, but it also doesn't have a finality to it. Because there's just so much lingering and so much brought in and it's like, why did you do this? Why are these people here? What is going on? Yeah, I completely agree that they kind of bit off more than they could chew here. So we can end our round table of Neils and Rises with a positive, as I planned. It's yeah, all been I'd, building to this moment. I'd lost track completely. Good job I hadn't. It has jumped around more than I thought it would have. But anyway, unlike iZombie, I was building to this all along. Hey! Yeah. So what else can I end and Neil before Rise Again, so the final season of Eyes On Beyond, other than the live Ravi Clive dynamic. What else is there? I mean, it's been the consistently best thing the show has ever given us, and I think they did wonders with it this season. I've already talked about during the dance bit, there was the heist episode where they got to go on one last mission together, and that was incredible. You know, Liv and Ravi munching on the right brains to get the right skills. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Ravi getting his Russian voice, which I couldn't really tell if that was the brain giving him the Russian voice or if that was an affectation he was cultivating on his own. Either way, it doesn't matter. But it's, yeah, 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 I'm the great thing about it is it's equally likely as well. Yeah, either one. I believe either one. It's when he talks to that girl that he like slept with when he was at the CDC. She's like, I, can, I don't even remember that you were Russian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just classic. I mean, absolutely brilliant. But they always managed to get those three of them or in various combinations, in different scenarios that just suited their characters so well. And there was just always such a natural chemistry between them that was just a joy to watch. There was quite a few points where Liv on various brains was making little puns about Ravi's name. You know, don't you want to have a hard body, Shakrabati? And he's like, that is enough of the wordplay with my name. <laughs> <laughs> Because it happened a few times, it was really good. Actually, just as a brief aside on Ravi's name, I remember at the start of the series, I didn't actually realise that was what his name was for a while. Because for maybe about half the first season or so, I actually thought that his name was Robbie. Robbie. Um, <laughs> I think about the way that Robbie would be pronounced in an American accent. Yeah, true. And it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of the same. Hmm. And I can't remember how I clicked what his name actually was, but I remember thinking, it's like, oh, wow, I got that wrong. <laughs> Just be glad you weren't writing reviews at the time. <laughs> In this episode, Robbie does this. Who the hell is Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> he seems quite prominent. Have I, have I sleep through half an episode? <laughs> and I suppose we could add Peyton in there as well. I mean, we haven't really mentioned her, but she's really good. Ali Mashalka's brilliant. Her friendship with Liv is brilliant. Her relationship with Ravi. I wouldn't say it's the weakest thing on the show, but it's one of the least interesting because it's stable. Uh, I think part of why 
there's not that much to say about Peyton is because for quite some time her presence on the show was defined by her relationships to, to other characters and it was only in the last that she was given her own plot lines where she was most significant aspect of and, and she was the driving force of them and I much prefer her like that rather than being someone who's effectively an emotional accessory yeah and then she gets to be a zombie, kind of gets to be a hero in the last episode as well. And then when she frees everybody and then gets shot, and that's what makes her become a zombie. And I never really bought Blaine's infatuation with her as such. Um, I mean, I suppose other than if you met Peyton, could you be anything but infatuated <laughs> with her, I suppose? I always took it uh, less as infatuation and, and more just another aspect of Blaine's need to control everybody. And why whatever way forcing Peyton to be in some kind of twisted relationship with him was his way of controlling her. I like to gag about the ball and chain. That, that was funny. She was yes. literally wearing a ball and chain. <laughs> <laughs> Although, why did he give her Darcy's brain? What an idiot. Because plot requirement. Should that not have cured her as well? Because I thought they'd establish that the Freylic brain, if a zombie ate it, would cure them. I don't think it was specifically just eating the brain directly. I think there was about the brains from which the zombie cure could be derived. There's like something about the brains that was unique to them. Mm. But yeah, but uh, some nebulous science needed to be done to them first. Yeah, they were like immune anyway, for sure. Yeah, anyway, that's beside the point. Yeah, the Clive, Ravi, Liv yeah, stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Just, I think, you know, anytime those actors share a scene together, magic happens. All the eye rolls that Malcolm Goodwin does when he <laughs> lives off on one on one of our brains, and Ravi's just being incredulous about everything that he doesn't agree with. Yeah, it's just great stuff. Those three are the core of the show. Yeah, yeah sure. I absolutely agree. Their dynamic has been absolutely fantastic from day one. And in any scene where you've got Liv and Ravi in a more discussing something, the moment that Clive walks in, then you know something's fun's going to happen. Yeah. That doesn't matter what the situation is or or what's happening, you know it's going to be great. Yeah. And they work as individual double acts as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think it is quite a difficult balance to strike to maintain that kind of intercharacter dynamic so consistently. I think they, they certainly achieved it perfectly. And, and it's one of the things about the show that they've always got right. And they even managed it when they were just texting, like in the last episode when they were on the plane. <laughs> yes. Like, this woman, this woman recognised me. She signed up for the Wi-Fi. She thinks I'm Kristen Bell. <laughs> well, she's going to be disappointed. <laughs> yes! <so> <laughs> It's the interesting thing about the Rose McIver casting, actually, because Rob Thomas making it, Veronica Mars, I know you haven't seen it, but uh, Veronica Mars is its certainly unique in terms of the personality type. And Rose McIver seems about as close to Kristen Bell as you can get, just in terms of the way she conducts herself. Like, you could see Kristen Bell playing that role almost no differently. You had that in an earlier episode where I think they had a book on tape and Kristen Bell read it. And Liv says, I've always had a special connection to her. So it's stuff you would get more if, if you watched Veronica Mars, actually. There's mm. always these little references to it. And, you know, they're always making fun of Rob Thomas as well, because there's the one that's in the band. I forget the name of the band, because I'm not cool enough. But there's another Rob Thomas that's in a band. And they made fun of him in season two by having him, like, killed. <laughs> and turned into a zombie. And it's like, Rob Zombie? Eh, Rob Zombie? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that's, that. a whole, that's a whole different music. Yeah, well, he was a Rob. He was a Rob and a zombie. So yeah, Rob Thomas sucks and all that kind of stuff. So brilliant. Yeah, I think going out with the final positive being celebrating those relationships is. Yeah, you can't do anything but that. 
because it was the core of the show. It was consistent right up until the end, and it was never not entertaining. Completely agree, 100%. And that's a perfect place to finish on. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, that's your job. We're not quite finished, though. We're going to discuss the ending in a little bit more detail. Oh, because we were, yes. So you've touched on it earlier. We had the time skip, which was really jarring. And also gives you a kind of high-level view of everything that happened since. And I thought the virtual podcast thing, while being a really weird future prediction, is that what we're going to be doing in like 10 years? Are we going to be sitting in our living rooms with virtual reality headsets on having a podcast? Well, it would probably be easier than sitting in a living room with microphones everywhere and wires trailing all over the floor. True. But also, does that mean there's going to be like virtual seagulls showing up whenever Natalie talks and stuff like that? <laughs> it seems like a weird way to have a podcast, but fine. Uh, it's a weird future prediction thing. I don't think it's going to be like that, but never mind. But it's like, oh yeah, so after the events of Seattle, we've got a zombie island now. Not everyone wants to be a zombie. Not everyone wants to be a human. So we're living in this weird harmony kind of thing. But are we? Are we really? Who knows what's actually going on? There's live sightings around the world. Is she dead? Because they don't reveal that she's alive until a little bit later. Yeah, it's just kind of awkward because it left me with more lingering questions than anything else. I mean, I I suppose at the end of a show you should have some questions. But I found that the stuff they were teasing wasn't actually answering the questions they were trying to answer. Yeah, well, it was because the, the questions they had at the end was as a result of how they ended it, rather than just leaving some things to not have inclusion because there was no space for them. Yeah, so they let you believe that Liv's dead for all of two minutes. Which you're never going to believe she's dead because you don't see her die. Exactly. And there's no emotional impact to it. And you have all this chat about Major was digging through the rubble for weeks, but if even if she did survive, she'd be a Romero, and it's like... There's no tragedy to this, because I know that they're about to reveal something. Then they reveal she's alive, and then they reveal that Major and Liv have gotten together. They're sort of raising of their perpetual children, these zombie children. Like, that's another thing that I'd, they'd never really touched on. You're turning these, like, preteens into zombies. Do they age emotionally? That's a concern, because imagine being trapped as a 10-year-old for the rest of your life. Well, it is the kind of thing I've uh, sometimes thought about, usually in relation to vampires uh, rather than zombies. Same thing in terms of the eternity side of it, though. Yeah, I think that I've, I've, I've thought it, it might work is because growing up and growing old are two different biological processes. Then it's possible that somebody who was turned as a child would continue to mature, and then once they became full adults, then they would cease aging. Though well, obviously that's, that's not the case here because we're ten years in the future and they're still the same. Yeah, but again, like it's something that would have been good to have at least acknowledged, if if not fully addressed. Yeah, because you've got all these kids. All right, they've got a terminal illness, which is horrifying. No kid should have to deal with that. No parent should have to deal with that. So, yeah, we'll turn them into zombies. They'll never die. Brilliant. Except they're also 10 years old for the rest of eternity. Are they ever going to mentally get over that? Imagine being a teenager, you know, stuck in Hormone City for the rest of eternity. That'd be ridiculous. So, yeah, they don't really address it. But there was an interesting quote from Rob Thomas when he was interviewed about the end of iZombie. And it's the bit where... Liv and Major get together, fine. They've always danced around them as a couple throughout the series. You know, they've had them be on and off, and they've never really stuck to it. But the interesting thing about what Rob Thomas says is he has no idea how to write stable relationships. (laughs) So if Liv and Major had gotten together at an earlier point in the series, it would have been boring to him because there's nothing there. It would just be continued on. And I think maybe that's just him acknowledging one of his failings as a writer. He's not able to 
do that consistently. But he's happy to have them end up together. Because then we can fill in the blanks of what their boring, idyllic life was afterwards. And I couldn't imagine an ending where they didn't get together. Because it's just kind of been building to it for that long. Although at the same time, it's weird how little chemistry they seem to have in the last season. I decided that was just because there was so much that they were each dealing with. Yeah. And just kind of being with each other was a secondary consideration. Yeah. And another issue I had with the ending was the cure side of it. The cure is the oldest story we have on the show. They've been building to it since season one. Ever since Ravi found out that Liv was a zombie in the very first episode, he's been thinking about how do I cure this thing? It's going to win me a Nobel Prize or whatever. And he's come across a few roadblocks. He's had temporary cures along the way. He had the cure he gave himself that turns him zombie-ish for a few days each month. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff. So you've had that. It's been consistently going and it's been consistently played with. And it's been consistent. I I need to stop saying the word consistent. It's been stable for the entire series. And you've always had a build up towards it. Now, it's kind of the opposite problem, The Walking Dead. You know, the, The Walking Dead, they just stop trying to cure the zombie plague at some point and it's just a slow march until they all die some kind of painful death i haven't watched the walking dead in years but i imagine that they're just picking off characters every year or so and you know we're supposed to feel sorry for them but that's where they're all ending up whereas i zombie's different in that respect but you've always had that lingering threat of a zombie apocalypse you know and that's where blaine became necessary because he was keeping the zombie population in check at one point and all that stuff but there was always a possibility that ravi would one day cure it and then you get to the point where it's like, I have everything I need to make a cure. I just have to synthesize it. And the next thing you know, we've got a cure now. And we're going to roll it out. And it's going to be cheap. I don't know why not free, but it's going to be cheap. Brilliant. And then it's ten years later. Oh yeah, some people took the cure and some didn't. And it just felt like a weird afterthought in an episode that probably should have just been about it. Because it had been such a prominent fixture from day one, more or less. It's another example of the finale not quite following through with the ideas that it's had. It was pretty much a given that the ending of the show was going to be the development of the cure by Ravi, because really the only other option is the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it's... Or yeah, the nuking and, of Seattle. Uh, precisely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's far too light-hearted a show for anything even approaching a bleak resolution. But since, as you pointed out, the, the cure has been such a constant throughout the entire show, then it's ultimate realisation should have felt more significant. It should have felt more like achievement rather than an afterthought. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could have seen zombies lining up to take it. You could have seen the reasons that zombies decided not to take it as well. They could have done a whole bit on that. But they didn't. It was just one of those, oh yeah, and then some took the cure and some didn't. And You know, the terminally ill people, they remain zombies. Although I was under the impression that being a zombie would solve that problem and then they could just cure themselves and then the problem wouldn't be there anymore. Or is that only apply to some injuries and not others? Mm. remember like one point Major was near death as a zombie and they had to wait until he healed enough so they could cure him. Yeah, yeah, actually. Maybe yeah, that doesn't apply yeah, to yeah, well, well, perhaps like it's only the, uh, illnesses or injuries that could heal naturally. Yeah. So um, cancer and tumours and stuff like that doesn't count. They didn't make that clear though. Like that, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, well, whatever. It is what it is, but... I think the, the cure should have been more prominent. You know, I should have seen Ravi work on it and finally just be like, oh, look at this. I've been trying for like five years and now I've finally got this and now I can mass produce it. And Although I, I'm in two minds about the kind of set piece they, they built around it where 
Major was like, I'm going to take the cure and let them shoot me to prove that it works. So that's a really stupid idea. <laughs> or we'll cut you open, the Frost guy. We'll cut you open on live on air. I really like the fakeable, fakeable can be faked. That won't work. People won't believe it. It's the, yeah. the fake news thing, you know, that you can fake a lot these days and it takes a lot to, to prove it to people. And because everybody is so sceptical about something that they don't already believe, yeah. then actually convincing them of it becomes so much harder. Yeah, but it's when Ravi rushed Enzo and then cured him and the punches got more and more weak. And it was the like Ravi just laughing in his face uh, with blood on his Yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah. It's like, hi, you're cured, you're human now. Yeah, I barely felt that you're, last punch. Like, you're, you're now everything that you hate yeah. for reasons we never bothered establishing. Yeah. Why do you hate humans? <laughs> Don't get it. Don't understand. But you are whatever you hate now. So that's that's who you are this week. Well done. Yeah, I guess that part's fine. But it all felt anticlimactic, unfortunately. I almost feel like if it had just been a season five that they were building things up and then it got cancelled might have been better off. It's quite often that things you imagine in your head usually end up being far better than something that you get shown. Yeah. So I suppose my final question for the show is, let's assume that there's a five or ten years from now, there's a Kickstarter that Rob Thomas and Rose McIver decide to do in order to bring iZombie back. So they do a Kickstarter, we're getting a film. Veronica Mars style. Amazing! Well done, fan base. Quickest Kickstarter in history since Veronica Mars. I can see the headline now. Do you think there's still scope for a story to be told in this universe based on how the episode ended? I think there is, yeah. You could have something like somebody was murdered who had some really important information in their brain that somebody else needs to get out for some reason. Scientific formula or kind of like codes to stop a nuclear launch or something like that. I don't know. I'm going the far list. It would be something that live by eating the brain could gain that knowledge. And then the difficulty and possible comedy from the film could come from Clive and or Ravi having to disguise how they were able to establish what the information was and where they got it from. It was a bit more something random, I don't know. Yeah. So I was thinking more along the lines of dialing into the mythology of the show itself. You know, Blaine gets fished out of the well, as I suggested at an earlier point. He's kind of kept alive by Stacey Boss that delights in having him as his carbonite trophy, effectively. <laughs> and then Blaine comes back, he escapes somehow to wreak havoc on the zombie island as it exists. That's a possibility as well. So, yeah, I think there is still scope for, for stories to be told, for these characters to continue. They didn't leave it completely open and shut. We can see how little things can play in. There's maybe a bit of unrest against zombies out there somewhere. Oh, I, I would assume there undoubtedly will be, since zombies still exist, and because people's issues with zombies was largely bigotry, then it would, it would stand to reason there would still be anti-zombie sentiment. Yeah. And in this film that's going to exist in ten years, it'll just pick up where the, the show left off in real time. Works for me. Yeah, I'll sign that petition. Not. It's not that I don't want the show to come back, it's just I think these petitions are pointless. They don't accomplish anything, so there's no point in signing them. Sign the Save Krypton petition. You know why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's not happening either. Yeah, so I think it's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the final season, but we've, we've covered it in some degree of detail. So, do you have a final thought on this season of iZombie? Uh, just that, uh, as a season in general, it was a little disappointing from what I was expecting, or rather what I was hoping. 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm glad that the show had the opportunity to end on its own terms, and that its core elements of the character dynamics and the endless variation on brain personae that Liv takes on both remained intact right up to the very end. Yeah, fair. I too was disappointed in the final season, for various reasons that I went into. But at the same time, still loved the show. It still kept that magic right up until the end. You know, that magic that is the cast, the characters. And I will be keeping an eye on what this cast does next. Uh, Let's hope Rose McIver can get away from crappy Netflix Christmas films. I have only seen the first Christmas Prince. The other, well, the other one that exists, there's a new one this Christmas. (laughs) Might be a masterpiece. I don't know. Probably never going to find out. But get her in other shows. I mean, the CW has to be prepping some stuff that she can be the lead in. Kind of want to see her play roles where she gets to embody different personalities so i just want to see eye zombie again much, just yeah. to spin off yeah i don't know is it too early to reboot orphan black and put her in it i think so yes it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not been that long yeah and even if you did that then all, all you get would be endless complaints that it wasn't tatiana maslany playing the characters this is true but then they would see rose mckiver and they'd be like ah, that's worked but i'll be i'll be looking out for these actors and things hopefully the cw will look after them put them in other stuff it would be nice um, to think so. Yeah, already had Raul Coley in Supergirl for one episode. All too, all too briefly. All too, well, he wasn't that good in that episode. I mean, he was fine. The, the character was kind of crappy. I've not really seen the others in anything else. David Anders, I've seen a few things. Remember when he was in Heroes? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and he was in Once Upon a Time for a while. Oh, was he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've not really uh, watched that. Yeah, well, it was, it was a bit ambiguous for a while who he was. It turns out he was Frankenstein. Of course. And incidentally, uh, Rose McIver was, was, it, was in it for a few episodes as well. Oh, wow. She, she was Tinkerbell. Hmm. I it can see that. Interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. That must have been during the extended break in between seasons that they had at one point. Can't remember. It was, it was a while ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. Ali Michalka, I've not seen in anything, although she was in that cheerleader show Hellcats that Tom Welling produced no I've never, I've never watched that me neither but she was in that and she was in that film with Emma Stone uh, Easy A oh yeah that was ages yep. ago yeah, you know, I, I only saw it fairly recently for the first time so it's still relatively fresh yeah it's a good film actually yeah it's actually yeah I enjoyed it Jessica Harmon she's in The 100 so she'll have a job after this at least for another season in fact, the reason she wasn't in the current season of The 100 until the end was because of iZombie, because she had commitment to that. But she was on both for a while, anyway. But she's kind of recurring status in both. There are other actors. No idea. I feel like the guy that plays Donnie, you can see, turn up as like a slimy sort of weird guy in anything. He does do it exceptionally well. Yeah. And the Stacey Boss, again, you could have him as the uh, slimy used car salesman or a lawyer or something. Mm. Whatever. We'll see them again. Guaranteed, because this cast are too talented to not put to use somewhere else. I mean, there's how many more Arrowverse spin-offs are we going to get? Just... All of them. Yeah. Have them. some of them in that? I don't know. It's not branching out terribly much, but it is what it is. That's a large digression. Yeah, so I think it might be worth, at some point, once the dust settles, coming back to just discuss the show as a whole, from its more earlier point of view... I guess after we've had the opportunity to rewatch it, maybe after we've cajoled some other people into watching it so that we can have a bit more of a panel discussion about the, the show itself and that kind of thing. Who knows? I'd like to do that. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely, definitely be up for that. Okay. I don't want to push you down a well, so I guess I'll just say goodnight. And I will now shuffle off to the kitchen and 
find something in the fridge that definitely is not brains. Well, I'm going to find the brain of Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that was our discussion of iZombie's final season. Thanks to Dax Riggs from the YouTube channel HiyaBuddy69's cover of the iZombie theme, Stop, I'm Already Dead by Dead Boy and the Elephant Man. If you liked our discussion, then please do subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or any major podcasting app. iTunes users, don't forget to leave a star rating and comment. If you want to discuss iZombie or anything else, then hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, we hope you'll join us on the next Kneel Before Pod. Uh, I will, I will. Stop in an hour, I'm already dead. Yeah, I am. I am now. Uh,